This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Mental Health Moments, hosted by yours truly, Phil McCabe, and brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Now, just in case you didn't know, June is Pride Month, something that I suspect can greatly impact one's mental health for a variety of reasons. And with that said, joining me today to talk about all things Pride is Karen Kugelmas, a social worker with CMHA. Thank you for joining me today, Karen. Thanks for having me. Right out of the gate, I wanted to ask you something that seems like it's kind of a broad question, but I want to ask it anyway. What does pride mean to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, pride means to me, it it really means something about celebrating identity and like taking up space, right? This is our month. Well, I mean, the landscape has changed tremendously. Many 2S LGBTQ people are still facing discrimination and harassment and just like an overall lack of safety in their families and communities. And that forces people to hide parts of themselves and experience things like shame. So pride in this whole month is really about celebrating our identities and all of those parts of ourselves. And it's about coming together as a community and really being present for one another. I'd like to think I'm an ally, and in general, I'm I'm in favor of Pride Month. Personally, I think that it should be more than a month. But the flip side mm-hmm. of that is that there are still those that that come across as morally or religiously opposed to Pride Month, Pride Parades, and, and all that Pride kind of stands for. Speaking from your experience as a human being and as a social worker, how can we as allies do more to support the LGBTQ2S uh, community as we try and garner more support? I mean, there's like an endless list of ways to be an ally. Um, Being an ally typically is really about like advocacy and action. So it's not quite enough to say like, you know, I have no problem with these people or like I'm not actively engaging in discrimination. We we need allies to actually like speak up and act up. So that can mean anything from, you know, like talking to your kids about, you know, different kinds of people, different kinds of families. It might be actually speaking up if you like witness something that's obviously, you know, discriminatory or exclusionary. It's it's about using inclusive language, supporting queer-owned businesses. You know, it, it's all these kinds of things. These are all ways that people can be allies in their in their lives. And most of it kind of starts by actually looking inside of ourselves and checking in on our own our own biases and our own ideas because we've all been brought up in this world where where there is a lot of bias. And, and checking in there first and then finding some ways to act. And briefly there, you, you touched on checking our, ourselves and our own biases and stuff. And in the interest of full disclosure, in my past, I, I've used derogatory language. I've used slurs. And that's simply because I, I didn't realize the kind of impact that those or that that language had on the community around me. Are we supposed to be doing things like if someone uses the F word or or call someone queer in a derogatory term, are we supposed to be stepping in and be like, hey, this is why you shouldn't say that? Or is it one of those things that it's okay, you're entitled to your opinion, even if you're using poor language? I think personally, we probably should be stepping in. However, I want to like, there's a caveat to that, which is like, we also need to keep ourselves safe. Um, and then there are situations where it may not be safe to do something like that. Um, but in the event that it is, yeah, I think it is good to step in and say something. And that doesn't mean that you need to like publicly humi- humiliate someone or cancel them or do anything like that. But it may just be kind of pulling someone aside and being like, hey, okay, I noticed you said this. And listen, you know, like you just said, you have to use language. Most of us have because the landscape of language changes, right? Um, and saying like, hey, I just 
thought about this and, you know, I, I've been thinking about how it impacts people and, and, you know, I just wondered if you've ever thought about that and thought about if there might be an alternative to that word. I think it's great if people are able to do that. It, it takes the onus off. It's just being the responsibility of the folks who are impacted by it. Um, and, and that's really a lot of the work of allyship. So I would say stand up if you can, but also keep yourself safe. Well, I'm glad you said that, too, because as I've tried to grow as an ally, as a human being, I've thought to myself that, you know, I I will never fully understand the struggle that people within this community go through. And I'll I'll never fully appreciate what it is to, to have a, a Pride Month dedicated to myself. As you said, being able to step in when it's safe to do so is a way that we can further conversations and really get people thinking about, you know, this is why it's not okay to to say these things. And even if you don't believe it, even if you don't support it, even if you're against it, you don't have to use language that's just going to put down another human being. Absolutely. And that and that goes beyond just the, the queer community, right? Like I think over the last couple of years, many of us have thought a lot more about about race or movements like Black Lives Matter um, and, and things like that, right? And, and we don't have to be a part of a community to stand up for it or to believe in it, right? We're not all going to have all of the same experiences. We all have different identities, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, support folks and, and speak up. We don't have to fully understand or be able to know what that experience is to understand that people don't, shouldn't be put down, shouldn't be excluded, and, and shouldn't have to experience that kind of stuff on a day-to-day basis. There are those that are against pride. So my my question to you, in, in your experience, what kind of impact does Pride Month have on one's mental health? You know, because be, I, I can imagine that although it can be uplifting to be celebrated and given a platform, I feel like it could be equally as draining and, and upsetting to be met with such hate and hostility every time Pride Month rolls around. Yeah, you know, I think that Pride Month you know, it, it's, everything is very public, right? So we start hearing about controversies around having things like, you know, drag queen story time in libraries and people having rainbow flags and schools wanting to do pride parades. So it, it becomes more public. But unfortunately, you know, this kind of hostility um, toward these issues, it, it doesn't only happen in June. It doesn't only happen during Pride Month. Um, and I think that while that's there, it kind of gets browned out in some ways by a lot of the support that we're seeing. So whether it's just, you know, businesses having a rainbow flag in their window or, or people actually going down to the parade and, and seeing folks celebrating, it's, it's such a time of community um, that uh, I, I actually think that sometimes that hostility and hate can be easier to deal with during Pride Month because people are thinking about it and talking about it. And so while there may be a bit more uh, pain and hostility, there also can be more support. And I think that that makes a really big difference. You know, I think about, I recently had a conversation with a client who, who was part of the community and, and I was so struck. They said to me, we we're talking about what they're going to do for pride. And they said to me, you know, when I go, when I go to pride every year, it's the only time that I actually feel safe. And I was just like, whoa, you know, first of all, how horrible that you spend most of your time not feeling safe, right? But also, like, that is the power of, of Pride Month and of Pride events is this celebration of this proliferation of identities. 
And it really has a huge impact, I think, on, on the mental health of individuals, especially those who do experience hostility and hate, not just in June, but potentially all year round, maybe even in their own homes. And thank you for telling that story. You know, I don't have any personal experiences with the, hearing those kinds of stories, but I, I assumed they were out there. And I find that almost troubling that in 2022, we live in a country where gay marriage is legal. We live in a society where, you know, it's accepted by laws and what have you, but it's still so controversial somehow. It's it's mind boggling to me that we still haven't reached a point that we can have normalized conversations about homosexuality and all the different aspects of being a member of LGBTQ. It's it's crazy to me that we we still haven't reached that point. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like, listen, I totally agree. I think there has been huge amounts of progress. And yes, things like, you know, legalizing marriage, there's, you know, protection in the charter, all these kinds of things. Um, but there's still a lot of work to be done. I, I work with a, a lot of youth in, in the community, and I would like to think that these things are changing. I would like to think that the understanding of, of gender and sexuality is just becoming much more broad. And the understanding that, you know, who we are interested in partnering with, what our desires are, these, these don't define us as people, and they certainly don't define our worth or, or the fact that we all deserve to be accepted and respected under the circumstances, I wanted to give in the last little bit of the show, uh, I wanted to give you the chance to talk about some of the the services and programs that uh, CMHA might have geared towards this community and how, how can people access them? Yeah, of course. So the Canadian Mental Health Association, I mean, we serve like over 42,000 people a year across York Region and South Simcoe. So, I mean, it stands to reason that some of those folks are part of the 2SLGBTQ community. Um, and all of our programs are inclusive. All of our staff have done training, working with members of the community. So really folks can access any of the programs we have. And we have, you know, everything from um, housing support for people uh, who have mental illness to, you know, clinical therapy groups. We have an employment program. We have a program for newcomers. Um, there's over 30 programs. So anything can be accessed by people in the community. In terms of things that are specifically geared to these folks. We do have a group called Under the Rainbow, and that's for members of the, of the 2S LGBTQ community and allies. Um, and they meet every other Tuesday. And it's a, it's a community group, um, and it's really about, you know, celebrating identity and, and exploring things. They often have guest speakers. And it's just a really lovely space. And it's run by a peer, a person who identifies both as part of the community and also as having uh, had some mental health concerns uh, in their lifetime and having that lived experience. We also have um, the Gender Affirming Health Clinic, and we work specifically with folks who identify as trans, non-binary, and gender diverse. And we offer both um, physical and mental health services within, within that clinic. And then MOBIES, which is our mobile youth clinic, which many of you may be familiar with, um, they actually, they provide services, both physical and mental health services, to uh, folks ages 12 to 25. Uh, and on that, they have a binder program um, where youth can access a free binder and they actually get properly fitted by one of our nurse practitioners and given lots of information about safe use uh, and things like that. So those programs are geared specifically to the queer community. 
That's wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that an organization like CMHA has all of these services and programs because, you know, like you and I have been discussing, we're we all live on this planet together. We're all a community and we should be united in propping up those in need. So it's nice to hear. Karen, my last question for you, if there's someone out there that's struggling mentally, what would you like them to know right now? You know, I, like, I think it's, it's like, it's become a cliche, but it's true. You're not alone. You know, there's, there's so many of us out there who are part of the community. And so many of us have the, the experience of at one time, you know, feeling alone, being fearful of realizing these parts of our identities. And so there's, there's community out there. There's supports out there. You don't have to do this alone and you can still live the life that you want to lead. Um, so reach out, you know, reach out to the Canadian Mental Health Association, reach out to an organization, maybe it's a safe family member, you know, teachers, guidance counselors, someone who you know who's part of the community, and reach out, find out what's out there, because the power of being connected to services, the power of being connected to the community is, is so huge, and the, the impact on, that, on mental health um, is, you know, I, I, can't, I can't even say like how big it is, because it, it can't be quantified. And specifically, I mean, if people want to reach out to us at CMHA or like just learn more about our programs, they can go to our website, um, which is cmha-yr.on.ca. And there you can see a whole list of our programs and ways to contact. Um, I always suggest going to our central intake department. They're so knowledgeable. Um, And I, I know that that first step can be so scary. But, you know, mental health issues make us isolate. And, and... It, it doesn't help. It really doesn't. And taking that first step to reach out is, is so hard and so important. You know, I couldn't have said it any better myself, but that's why I bring guests like you on. Karen Kugelmoss, the, uh, a social worker with CMHA, York South Simcoe, thank you so much for being here today. Bill, thank you so much. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health concerns, contact a local agency near you. This has been Mental Health Moments, brought to you by 105.9 The Region. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. Welcome to the third episode of the Canadian Museums Association podcast. This final presentation of the three-part series centered on the future of Canada's museums. Viewed through the lens of the CMA's 2022 conference theme, Dismantling Foundations to Build a Better Tomorrow. In the series, we're hearing from three speakers sharing their perspectives of the present, past, and future of the Canadian museum sector. Massimo Bergamini is CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Museums Association. Heather George is an Indigenous curator currently working at the Woodland Cultural Centre and a CMA board member. And Luann Neal is an artist and arts advocate currently working at Creative BC, British Columbia's creative industry catalyst, following a three-year tenure as head of Indigenous collections at the Royal BC Museum. Luann is also a member of the CMA Reconciliation Council. The role of museums, as important as it was 50 years ago, is even more relevant, more important today. Massimo Bergamini looks to the future of Canadian museums with optimism. As chief executive of the Canadian Museums Association, he represents more than 500 heritage institutions across the country, large and small. 
now is the time to come together and make the case for a new partnership with governments, a partnership that would change the old business models and actually give us the wherewithal to do what we need to do. We need to do a better job as a community, as a sector, in explaining to Canadians and to governments at all levels why museums matter, why they matter now perhaps more than any time in our history, and what we can do together to help move the country forward. That's a role that the CMA can't play on its own. It would have no credibility. It really requires the amplification of CMA's messages and advocacy by its members. In order to achieve that important role, Canadian museums are facing many pressures to change. Changing local governance to be more transparent and inclusive, changing the work environments to be more culturally aware and safe, and changing access to opportunities. Heather George is an accomplished curator and member of the association's board. She talks about the need for also changing the stories museums tell. I often hear the complaint about revisionist history. This is like a popular thing right now to throw at people when they're like going back and sort of rewriting history. And I don't think that that's an accurate thing to say because that sort of is based on this idea that historical narratives are frozen in time. And we know even if we aren't including an anti or decolonial lens in our historical work, we find new material all the time that changes the way we think about history. So history is always changing, it's not static. And to try and pretend that it's anything else is doing a disservice to the general public, but also to underrepresented groups in the public. Changing the narrative will be a long process. We're in early days. We're having the conversations, which is great. And there's a lot of allies, a lot of good people out there who are interested in creating change. And they're willing to hear what Indigenous communities and other minority and underrepresented communities have to say. They really are. But I don't think that a lot of people necessarily have the tools in place. So that gets back to like HR policies, collecting policies, all those types of things, right? We don't have the tools necessarily, and we don't necessarily have enough education yet. And we're at baby steps, but it's okay. It's okay that we're at the early stages because this work can't be done without establishing relationships. It needs to be done, not just in your head, not just intellectually, but as hard work, and that takes time. And even though I wish things could change tomorrow, the reality is, is that colonization is not going away. Something Luann Neal hopes to see is improved documentation and identifying the artifacts in collections and where they came from. I think that there needs to be more investment and more strategy, not just throwing money at it, but real genuine strategy in museums linking together across this country to talk about what is in the collection and where are the items that have very little to no information. And let's get going on some research to clarify where these things actually belong. It's not going to help us in the short term build and strengthen those relationships with communities if we keep saying, I'm sorry, we don't know if we have anything of yours here. And I had to say that a few times to communities, not to make them go away, but just to be truthful with them and say, 
I actually can't tell from our database whether your community has anything here. And we end up going in a big circle saying, what did anthropologists used to call you? What did linguists used to call you? And how many different spellings are there for your language or your tribe or your geographic village location? So it ends up being a lot of different research and it's very, very challenging and very frustrating, not only for communities, but for museum professionals who can't honestly answer the questions. So I think that getting some strategy together around that, perhaps the Canadian Museums Association annual conference can be an opportunity to spend time and dedicate a part of that conference every year to holding those discussions, talk about what's working, new innovative approaches that are happening. I would really love to have more of those discussions with my colleagues. Another change, the hiring process at museums. I was very much involved in the early 90s in the employment equity policy for the province of BC. And all of the discussions we had around that was this always still treating Indigenous people and people of colour as this arm's length group that there needs to be this bridge and this patchwork done to be inclusive. But what it wasn't recognizing is in the actual interview process, the questions that are asked often don't give the candidate an opportunity to talk about their lived experience. And that lived experience, I think, is central to the relationships that these organizations are seeking. So when you ask all these technical questions and you're just drawing from things that they may have learned in a particular class while they were in university, you're not getting a sense of whether this individual on the ground is going to be able to establish and maintain these relationships. Massimo Bergamini says healing relationships is another priority. The organization, through its leadership board and staff, have been working hard to rebuild those relations that were somewhat frayed over the last few years. So we need the community to step up. We need the community to join us. We need the community to speak to us. We need the community to tell us when we're doing things well and tell us when we're doing things poorly. It's going to take a bit of time and a bit of work for us to really be critical in our museology and be critical of narratives and to get everybody to the point that they're comfortable with being critical so that they don't feel that it's about them or that they are bad people or that their ancestors are bad people. Because when you're doing this work, it can be really, really hard for people not to take it personally. The effect and impact of the TRC is that there's been a transition where you're just a voice with a special lived experience, but that lived experience, it lateralizes across a lot of different areas. So can museums survive these needs for change? Do they have a future? Luann Neal is optimistic. I'm really actually excited about that possibility because I think that the fact of the matter is, and I don't have any hard statistics on this, but it would be an interesting study to have a look at the percentage of items in any given museum in this country to find out how many actually have all the backup documents that support their claim to have acquired it legitimately and not under duress. And that's a whole other conversation right there under duress when things were taken out of our communities, especially when people were being relocated and then someone followed in behind and took treasures out of their communities. So that has to happen. But this whole idea around repatriating and then hitting the reset button and saying, as museums, 
And in many other cases, I'll say non-Indigenous, whether it's a natural history museum or if it's looking at the social history of the surrounding nations, there are processes and abilities to commission pieces, to have pieces brought in by the nation by their own account, that they want this in a museum. So why haven't we been doing that? I think we see good examples of it when we use terminology such as traditional versus contemporary, which again, another whole discussion right there. But say a curator in a museum might say, okay, this is a silkscreen print. It's very modern. We'll put it in our contemporary indigenous collection. So let's purchase it from the company that printed it. And the artist gets a royalty from that. So everything looks really nice on the surface and probably is a good arrangement. But the fact is that they've gone through a process of consciously either commissioning or purchasing. So that is a possibility. So I think we should definitely look at that. Museums also rely a great deal on people donating and bringing forward entire collections, which we're seeing, again, a lot of because of people who may have gathered earlier in the century and who have passed on and now their descendants aren't sure what to do with these treasures. So they bring them to museums and donate them. So all of those things are possible. You know, what I heard the most in talking with First Nations communities about repatriation is that stuff was stolen. And it's a big difference from having an institution that's filled with stolen items and an institution that has worked really closely with communities to commission or receive donations that have all the legitimate paperwork behind them to show that the person has the right to donate it to a museum in the first place. So I think there's conversations that some people might be afraid to engage in because it's going to surface the fact that some items in museums are indeed stolen. And it's a difficult discussion, but that's the truth. And then we have something to reconcile. But importantly for Massimo Bergamini is a clear government policy before a new funding model. Are we actually going to be serving our sector by saying, well, just add an additional $100 million a year to the MAP envelope? No. What we need to do is really come together and say, what do we want to do? What do we need in our institutions in terms of capacity, human capacity, financial capacity, programmatic capacity, and so on, to achieve these things, this dynamic and forward-looking agenda that we have for the country, and then translate that into a suite of programs that would support it. Which is why our position is to say to the government of Canada, we're not going to come to you with a monetary ask until we've had a chance to work with you towards a new national museum policy. What we need from you, government of Canada, is to sit down with us, work through this reflection with us, reach a consensus on a vision of Canada and the role that museums can play in this, and then you, government of Canada, translate it into a policy framework and policy commitments that create your accountability, and then we'll put together the quantums that are required. Otherwise, we keep playing the same game and we're really just kicking the can down the proverbial street. And Luann Neal says despite the many delays over the years, she has seen progress and is confident in seeing more. And I think if we go back to the 1994 task force on museums and First Peoples, there was a great number of recommendations made there. Some of them, especially around policies, there was a time when museums used to actually display ancestral remains for once. Well, after lots of discussion and lots of feedback from our communities about how absolutely wrong that was to do that, it stopped. 
a lot of museums, at least in Canada, there are still museums around the world that still display human remains. But the conscious effort was made to stop that. So that's a good example of what can be done quite simply on the ground at the program level. And then afterwards, the policies were looked at and the policies updated. And another great example that I've encountered myself is when we've had Métis or Inuit or First Nations people come through a museum and say, you know what, that's a really sacred item. That's not for public consumption. It should be not on display. It should be taken out. And so the museum being able to respond and do that and remove that piece and begin the discussion of repatriation of those items. With the minority federal government now having been given an extended life through its supply and confidence agreement with the NDP, Massimo Bergamini believes the time is right to produce that long-talked-about museum policy for a new era. We are going to begin reaching out to members and to the community probably towards the end of April, early May, an initial roundtable. And then we plan to have roundtables, pan-Canadian roundtables with the larger community to reflect on those very things, reach a consensus on a vision of the country and a vision of our role within that country, and then translate it into program asks. And then everything has to be on the table, everything from funding for capital projects, which is not unusual for a government, funding for operating, which is unusual for government, and then program funding. But what we do know is that, from our perspective at least, it has to start with a new consensus on a policy framework that will establish a mutual accountability framework so that the government candidate is accountable for providing us the resources and we're accountable for delivering the kind of programming and activities that actually move the country forward. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.